Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael Da Silva and I am your host for episode 26. In this episode, Pablo Segal is going to continue his study with us on the subject of the unity in the church. We trust that these truths will build upon what has already been covered in part one of the study. If you missed it, we would highly recommend you first listen to episode nine. God bless. Hello and welcome, and thank you for listening to this second podcast on the subject of the unity of the church. Our first podcast focused on John 17, 20-23, and we learned about the Lord Jesus praying for the unity of all believers. That unity was achieved thanks to his death and resurrection, thus becoming a spiritual and ontological reality. The astonishing thought that the Church's unity model is based in the Trinity is a powerful reminder that we, as Christians, must try to live and to experience our unity in precisely that same way. Unity then becomes a testimony to the world that Jesus is the one sent by the Father, that the Father has loved the Son, and that the Father loves the Church with the same love. In the next two podcasts, we will focus on another critical passage regarding the Church unity, Ephesians 4, 1-16. In this podcast, we will address the first six verses of this passage, and the Lord willing, in the next podcast, we will consider verses 7-16. to there are two critical phrases regarding unity in Ephesians 4, 1-16. The first one is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in verse 3. The other one is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God in verse 13. What these two phrases have in common is that both use the noun unity. This noun appears nowhere else in the New Testament, and it is also very rare in Greek secular or religious literature. In verse 3, Paul presents the unity of the Spirit as something that must be maintained at all costs. In verse 13, the Apostle affirms that the unity of the faith is a goal to attain for all believers. The first one is the way of living that is worthy of the call with which Christians were called. The second one implies the fulfillment of each believer's goal, that is, spiritual maturity, which is achieved by means of using the gifts the Church received from a triumphant Christ. Let's start with the first unity. I therefore, this is Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
this section of Ephesians is usually regarded as the practical section of the letter. However, we must keep in mind that this second imperative part of the book is robustly based and connected with the first indicative part of Ephesians. This imperative section, meaning the exhortation section, does not come out of the blue. Instead, what Paul is going to say refers to the visible expression of spiritual truths that he has already addressed. One of them is unity. Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 6 that a mystery was revealed to him, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 12 to, uh, verses 12 to 18, addressing the Gentiles, Paul affirms, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This lengthy statement is truly amazing. No one would have imagined that the Gentiles and the Jews could be brought together to form a new entity without further reason for animosity, be it religious, ethnic, tradition, or even repulsion between the parties. The cross has killed all hostility. Toward the end of chapter 3, where Paul wonderfully prays for the believers, we find that one of the apostles' wishes is that the Ephesians might be strengthened in order to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Both Gentiles and Jews are included in this request, in this request so that they might spiritually grow and flourish. Having said this, now Paul enters into the exhortatory section from chapter 4 onwards. He opens the section with the coordinate conjunction, therefore, which not only introduces it, but also links it with what he has already said. He is urging the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The verb to walk means behavior, including ethical, ethical connotations. 
Paul frequently mentions this verb inefficience eight times in total, actually. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds his readers that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the, uh, the course of his world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience. Further on, in verse 10, and after the significant statement that the salvation the, the Ephesians received was by grace through faith, Paul states that they now must walk in the good works that God prepared for them beforehand. The verb walking, therefore, shows how a person both perceives life and conducts here or his or her way of living. Thus, in verse 1, Paul exhorts the believers to live in such a way that matches or that has the same weight of the divine calling. That's the the idea behind the meaning of the word worthy, something that has weight. In chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul is going to explain the manner in which believers are to walk worthily of their calling. First, Paul mentions three virtues that must be part of the believers' lives. Humility, or humbleness, which corresponds to the Greek noun tapeinofrosune, gentleness or meekness, which corresponds to the noun prautes, and patience or forbearance, which corresponds to the Greek word makrothumia. The first two virtues are paired and preceded by the phrase with all. This feature perhaps indicates that these virtues must be exercised and exhibited at any time, in any situation, and up to any level. The fact that humbleness and meekness appear together demonstrates that both are closely related. It is striking, however, that the phrase with all humility, which corresponds to the Greek phrase metapasses tapeinofrosunes, appears only one more time in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. In chapter 20, we have Paul's final farewell to precisely the Ephesus church leaders on the coast of Miletus. In his final words, Paul says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to our God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the elders of Ephesus that when he was among them, he was serving the Lord with all humility. The Ephesians' minds would be brought back to that moment where Paul saw them for the last time.
the phrase would have helped them to understand what Paul had in mind when he exhorts them to walk with all humbleness. The difference between Acts 20 and Ephesians 4 is that Paul was serving the Lord, whereas the Ephesians' exhortation is to have a lifestyle characterized by humility. Also, instead of tears after humility, Paul now writes gentleness. But the idea remains the same. Paul is exhorting them to live the same way he served, not putting himself as the priority, but others. And that is precisely the idea behind the word tapenofrosunes, which literally means lowliness of mind. The virtue of humbleness, however, was not considered a virtue at all by the Greco-Roman culture. On the contrary, as one scholar observes, the word was, and I quote, associated with craven, cowering, or the obsequiousness of a slave, and it was placed first in a list of qualities not to be commended and was seen as the attribute of a weak person." End of the quote. But along with humbleness, Paul adds gentleness or meekness. This last noun means, according to uh, a Greek lexicon known as bdag, B-D-A-G, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It is remarkable that when the Lord Jesus speaks about himself, he says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven, twenty-nine. The Lord uses the cognate adjectives praus for gentle and tapeinos for humble instead of the nouns we find here in Ephesians 4.2, but transmitting a similar idea. Jesus, even though being superior to all, became a servant, looking for the good of others, even to the point of dying on a cross for the sinners. I can't think of a better example of what walking in humbleness and meekness mean than the Lord's example. Commenting on this passage, the well-respected New Testament scholar Leon Morris says, and I quote, This taking of a lowly place is not worthy. Leaders and teachers have always tended to take a superior place, but Jesus has no need of such gimmicks. He left his place in heaven, and on earth took the form of a slave. End of the quote. The Ephesians believers, as we also, must walk in this way. The apostle, however, adds another virtue that must be present in the walking that is worthy of the believer's calling. Patience. This term means a state of being able to bear up under provocation. We must notice that these last two nouns, praoutes, 
uh, gentleness and macrothumia, patience, are part of what Paul defines as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, which helps to understand that the virtues Paul has in mind here are much more than a human effort of getting along with others. It is both a resemblance of the Lord Jesus' character and the external expression, the fruit, of the constant inward activity of the Holy Spirit within the believer. And how does Paul end this part of, the, of his appeal? By saying, bearing with one another in love. There is more than one way to understand this phrase. I can, it can be connected with the calling to be patient, amplifying the exhortation's meaning. Or, more likely, the expression is indicating the means by which believers are to walk as a worthy, as is worthy of their calling, that is, by bearing, by bearing with one another in love. Both ideas are correct, though I slightly prefer the latter. The short final phrase, in love, can be interpreted in three ways too. First, it may indicate that love is the ultimate cause that motivates us to bear one another. This is how the New Living Translation renders the phrase. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Second, the phrase in love may indicate that love is the instrument by which we bear with one another, thus rendering bearing with one another by love. Or, a third option, the phrase may indicate that love is the manner in which believers bear with one another, thus in love or perhaps lovingly. These three ways to translate the Greek prepositional phrase not only are grammatically correct, but they are theologically accurate. Because of love, And through love, and in love, we must be able to put up with one another. If we remember the Lord Jesus' words, then we shouldn't be surprised by the Apostle's exhortation. He said, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. John 13, 35 Just consider this compelling picture. A group of people, though aware of their mutual differences and profound shortcomings, are still able to not only get along because they have to, but to do so humbly, gently, patiently, and to lovingly endure one, one another, both through and because of the greatest of all virtues which is love. But, to be sure, this does not mean that we will all be church buddies. Rather, as one scholar comments, here love does not amount to being compatible or likable or warm feelings toward another, but rather tolerating others. The same scholar quotes Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, on this regard, and I quote, The love Paul requires of us is not common love, 
but that which cements us together and makes us cleave inseparably to one another, and effects as great and as perfect a union as though it were between limb and limb. We now enter into verse 3, where Paul introduces unity, which is, after all, the visible expression of the previous exhortations. Walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling means that believers will make every effort to keep the hallmark of Christianity, which is unity. Paul uses a participial verbal form, in this case, to be zealous or to be eager, but with an adverbial function. This means that the phrase plays a critical role here. A New Testament scholar comments, this final adverbial phrase is climactic. It is the goal toward which the other three phrases have been moving and a bridge to the next paragraph, verses 4 to 6. The Greek verb spodatso, to be eager, expresses willingness, intensity, and the scope of the Christian's actions in maintaining the unity of the Spirit. The term can be defined as to do something with intense effort and motivation, or also can be defined as to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. The Apostle uses this term to be eager, spodatso, when addressing Timothy in first in, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Do your best, spodazzo, be eager to present yourself to God as one approved. Later on in chapter 4, Paul twice urges Timothy to come to him ASAP. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas has deserted me because he loved this world. Verse 10. And then, in verse 21, Paul adds, Do your best to get here before winter. To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit is, therefore, not an option but a duty. However, this is not a duty prompted by imposed obligation, but rather by loving motivation. All believers, then, Jews and Gentiles are called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Christians are not called to create or even to organize unity, but to maintain it. And this verb, to keep, which corresponds to the Greek verb tereo, has ex extensive usage in the New Testament. It has the nuance of guarding or keep watch over something. Here, the most likely nuance is to cause a state, condition, or activity to continue. This unity is a reality. As we have already learned, it was made possible by the Holy Spirit, meaning that it is a unity that God's Spirit creates and therefore not the reader's own achievement. Perhaps this is not surprising to the reader's mind, because we can anticipate that God would do something like this. What amazes, however, is that these united people, 
can be responsible for disunity or division. This is why what follows in our verse is so relevant. Because Paul declares how unity is maintained through the bond that consists of peace. Like a fastener or perhaps a zipper, peace is able to bring separated parts and keep them united. We must keep in mind, though, that this peace is not the peace of man, but the peace of God. As Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God, and Philippians 4.7 adds the peace that comes from God, that comes from God. This peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit, and as one scholar comments, the peace that Paul speaks of here is the peace that comes from lives properly related to God, to creation, and to each other. A mature or spiritual believer will display peace as a result of his or her relationship with God. It is the mature believer, consequently, who will be eager to maintain unity. On the contrary, this unity or division will always be caused by the immature. And as we will see later, there is no way to grow up in maturity apart from a robust and sound exposition of the scriptures for which the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, has provided gifts. But we will see this aspect in the next podcast. We now briefly address what follows, which is a sevenfold statement that functions as a rationale for the church unity's exhortation. The section divides into two groups of three statements each and a final declaration, which is also expressed in four parts. The seven of them are introduced by the adjective one, perhaps as an echo of the noun unity that Paul uses in verse 3 and later on in verse 13. Of the seven, three phrases are references uh, to one of the persons of the Trinity. There is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. One body and one hope relates to one spirit, whereas one faith and one baptism go with one Lord. Those relationships are not random but intentioned. Paul starts with one body and one spirit, and this first pair is both logical and suitable because what the Apostle has in mind is precisely the unity of the body. As we mentioned at the beginning, in the section of chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, Paul has explained how Christ's work has turned down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, affirming in verse 18 that through him, that is, Jesus, we both, that is, Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. Then Paul mentions that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
Paul has reminded the Ephesians in 2.12 that in their former past, they were living in, in this world without God and hope. But now, both groups are unified, sharing the same hope. Hope is, a, is such a critical blessing that Paul includes it in his initial prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, the Apostle prays um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. There is one body, one spirit, and one hope. In verse 5, Paul continues with, the, with this brilliant sevenfold acclamation of oneness, as one scholar points out. The expression, there is one Lord, deserves some attention here. Paul has explained that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been turned down. For both groups, in their former distant cultural position, the title name Lord, or Kyrios in Greek, had significant meaning. In the case of the Jews, they had to come to acknowledge and believe that Jesus is Lord. This kind of affirmation was challenging for the Jewish mind because it made Jesus tantamount to Yahweh in the Old Testament. The most crucial passage to memorize for a Jew was Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord our God, is one Lord. For an unsaved Jewish person, to think that Jesus was Yahweh was simply outrageous. However, the Lord's resurrection and exaltation was the ultimate and decisive event that declared Jesus as Lord of all, as Paul affirms in Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore, the Jews and believers today, as Paul states in Romans 10, 9, were incorporated to the church by exercising faith in Jesus the Messiah, the, exalt, the exalted Lord. Romans 10.9 famously says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the case of the Gentiles with a Greco-Roman background, the most obvious link with the name title Kyrios, Lord, was Caesar, the emperor. A Greek inscription Contemporary to the Ephesians' days says, Nero, the Lord of all the universe. Greco-Roman unbelievers had to understand and believe that there was a higher Lord, a higher Kyrios, even over Caesar, Jesus, the Son of God. Paul had already stated this in chapter 1, when he prays for the believers so that they might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that also worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1, 20, 21. Strikingly, in verse 21, Paul uses the Greek noun kidiotes, a cognate of kidios, which means authority or dominion, as the translation renders here, power or lordship. Nero, as a curious, would be included in this group, but subjected under the authority of Jesus. Both concepts, therefore, of identity in the case of Jews and of loyalty in the case of Gentiles were fused and fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. The Ephesians believers, whether Gentiles or Jews, have now only one Lord. Ironically, not all scholars agree in the exact meaning of the statements that follow, one faith and one, spirit, uh, one baptism. The differences, however, are understandable because the phrases can be understood in more than one way. Because of time, I won't analyze in detail these differences, but I will briefly mention them as, and suggest how we can understand them. Regarding one faith, there are two ways to understand it. The first one is taking faith as subjective, that is, the believer's exercise of trust in the Lord as Savior. No one can be saved apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, and Paul himself has spoken about this, about this faith in Ephesians, notably um, in chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Seven times more, Paul uses this feminine noun, and most of them is in reference to trusting God and the Lord Jesus. If this is what Paul has in mind regarding faith, then the picture is compelling. It did not matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. They were all saved, exercising faith in the same person, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The second way to understand faith is taking it as objective, that is, the content of what we have believed. As one scholar explains, it refers to the body of teaching that Christians believe, what Paul calls in chapter 1 and verse 13, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. This is also how the gospel that Paul preached in, is called in Galatians 1, 22 and 23. In there, Paul says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. This interpretation of one faith not only is correct, but also offers another powerful example of every Christian's shared belief. Paul's declaration to the Corinthians is clear. For what I received, I passed on to you 
as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I, is, I slightly prefer this second understanding of faith, that is, the body of teaching that Christians believe. My inclination for this interpretation is because Paul's second teaching regarding unity in chapter 4 and verse 13 will be precisely focused on the attaining of the unity of the faith. But we will address that in our next podcast. Whatever the case, we all believers have only one faith. We will now see the sixth mutual reality for the church, one baptism. This phrase is not free of some controversy either. Some believers think that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit's baptism. Some others believe that the physical act of baptism is what Paul has in view here. I would like to suggest a third possibility. Baptism is used in the New Testament to describe the believer's conversion experience as being incorporated into Christ. This is the idea Paul has in mind in his argument in Romans 6 against the false concept that grace is a free pass to sin. Paul not only argues that that thought should perish, but also strongly affirms that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus as his or her Savior now enters into a new realm, a new reality. In verse 3, Paul says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with them through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We find something similar in Galatians 3.26-29, where the Apostle declares, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3 presents a remarkable similitude with Paul's argument here in Ephesians 4. He says that now there is no difference at the human level regarding our spiritual status before God. We now are all one in Christ Jesus. Every person who believes, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, male or female, is submerged into Christ. Thus, when Paul says in Ephesians 4.5 that there is one baptism, he is presenting a mutual reality for every Christian. We all have shared the same conversion experience. The seventh reality, the last one, that grounds the believer's unity is one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. The King James Version adds at the end of the verse the phrase, and in you all. However, that phrase corresponds to a poorly attested textual variant, and we should not consider it for the reading. The word all has been used by Paul in Ephesians to speak how God's plan implies that all things will be finally put under his authority. We read in chapter 1 that God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As one scholar comments, the church occupies a critical place in this divine plan, and so must itself be unified. The Messiah, the eternal Son of God, is at the center of that plan, because as also Paul affirms in chapter 1, he has subjected all things to Christ, chapter 1, verse 22. The church, therefore, as, as part of that perfect plan, is an example of how all things will be reunited in Christ. Another scholar thoroughly observes, when the church fails to maintain and express unity, it radically undermines the credibility of its belief in the one God. End of the quote. In summary, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all are seven objective spiritual realities that are the common ground for the unity of the church. Dear sisters and brothers, what unites us is neither tradition nor form, but God's provision. It is God who made it possible to be united in one body. The NLT wonderfully translates Ephesians 2.18, Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. There is no dividing wall. The most indestructible wall has been torn down by Christ's cross. We are, however, responsible for doing our best to maintain the unity by being humble, gentle, and patient by putting up with one another because of love and through love, using peace as the bond that zippers separated pieces that otherwise would be only an incomplete and erroneous picture of God's plan in creation. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you can join us again when we will complete the next section from verses 7 to 16. May God bless you all.